0: So have your Bibles open up to Psalm 132. We'll be looking at um, different passages today. The focus, of course, will be on Psalm 132. You'll see what I mean in a moment. I'll be reading the whole Psalm. Hear now the word of the Lord. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed in righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints with shouts of joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. Father, we pray that you would now illumine our hearts and minds to receive these truths found in this psalm concerning our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before the, the Pilgrims landed in Massachusetts, another group came to America, and they were also seeking religious freedom. In 1562, jean Ribault was sent from France to Florida in order to explore the area and begin a new colony. And he sailed with three ships, and they carried 150 people known as the Huguenots. They were the French... Protestants, France wanted to control this new land and drive out the Spanish settlers. Uh, Ribot and the Huguenots, though, they wanted to be in America for religious freedom. And they landed in Saint Augustine in 1562, but then they they went further up north and found a river that they, it was called Saint John's River. And at the mouth of the river, Ribault built a stone monument to mark his visit and to claim that spot for France. It was called Fort Caroline in what is now known as Jacksonville, Florida. And it was established to be a haven for the Huguenots with the hope of reaching the nation with the gospel. However, in God's providence, what happened was they didn't find that dream to come true. They never realized their dream. Why? Well, the Huguenots at Fort Caroline were martyred. At the hands of the Spanish, and Jean Ribot died. Now, why do I share that story? Well, the reason I share it is because it's reported that at his martyrdom, at his death, Ribot was chanting Psalm 132. He was literally begging God to make this nation, our nation, a a dwelling place for his presence. Instead of praying, Lord, remember the afflictions of your servant David, he prayed, Lord, remember the afflictions of your servant John, how he swore not to give rest to his eyes nor slumber to his eyelids until he found a dwelling place for the mighty God of Jacob. And so he was facing martyrdom. They were about to kill him, and he is chanting Psalm 132. And see, beloved, that is passion. It's passion, and more importantly, it it is the right passion. We have passion in the church. Believers have passion today in America. We're not lacking passion. The problem is that our passion is with the wrong things. It's with the wrong things. We're passionate about politics. We're passionate maybe about our job. We're passionate about sports teams even. We're passionate with our families. But how many of us have the passion of a John Rebeau? How many of us are passionate about God? How many of us long for and plead for God to meet with his people? And you see, that's what Psalm 132 is about. It's a passionate plea for the presence of God. And in this passionate plea, in his prayer, the psalmist shares a particular passion. It's a passion for the church. That is, it's a passion for God's dwelling with his people, assembly, coming together and worshiping God. It's It's a passion for being in the house of God. He has a passion for the place where God promises to dwell with and meet with his people. That's what we're going to find in Psalm 132. Now, Psalm 132 is what's called a psalm of ascent. In the Old Testament, there were 15 psalms called the psalms of ascent or pilgrim songs. Some call them Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And the psalms were sung as the worshipers made their way to Jerusalem during the three great festivals, the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so they would sing these psalms. And the longest of these psalms, these psalms of ascent, is Psalm 132. And in Psalm 132, what you have is a reflection upon 2 Samuel chapter 6 and a reflection particularly on 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's what the psalmist is singing about, the information we find there. Now, 2 Samuel 6 explains how David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The ark had been in the land of Ja'ar for over twenty years. And we're told that in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we learn that how David brought the ark and then transported it. Look at verse 1 uh, look at verse 6 of, of Psalm 132. We're told there. That's where it's referring to this whole thing that happened in 2 Samuel 6. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. And it goes on to about verse 8 to verse 10 to talk about that event. So one of the main things that it talks about, or one of the things that it's speaking on, is a reflection upon the bringing of the ark back to Jerusalem. But that's not the main thing. Uh, the main thing is what is found in Second Samuel chapter 7. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is probably, now I know I say this a lot, but it's probably the most important passage in all the Old Testament. Or at least it is surely one of them. There we find God establishing his covenant with King David. We read there that David, in 2 Samuel 7, David has this desire to build a house for the Lord, for God to dwell in, a temple to be worshipped in. But God responds and says, No, no, I'm going to build you a house, He says, in verses ten and eleven of Second Samuel seven, we read, "I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be dis- disturbed no more. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." David was about to do something for God. He he wanted to do something for God, and God comes to him and says, "Rather, I'm going to do something for you." When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is verse 12, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then in Second Samuel we continue to read, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's Second Samuel seven, twelve to sixteen. And so a promise is made that a son of David will sit on the throne forever. And so it's in light of these two events in 2 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 7, and in particularly in light of the covenant that God makes there in 2 Samuel 7, the psalmist constructs this song. He's taken those events and what we learned from the word there in those two chapters, and he constructs this psalm. He constructs this song, And it follows the same pattern that we found in 6 and 7 of 2 Samuel. David proposes... For God to build, a house, to build God a house. That's what we're going to read about in Psalm 132, 1 and 10. And then only to find out that God was proposing to build David a house. And not only that, but to establish his throne forever. That's what we read in verses 11 and 18. And so you have David's oath. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And that oath is balanced with the Lord's oath. Look at verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And so you have David's oath and his passion for fulfilling that oath that he's made. And then it's followed by God's oath and his promise to fulfill the promise that he made in verses 11 18. And so that's how the psalm is outlined. It's a plea by David, as it were, for God's presence and the promise, then, of God's presence. And the psalmist, what he does is he makes this request based on the covenant promise. And God responds to the request in this prayer and this praise and this song by, by, uh, by remembering his covenant promise. And so you see, as the the Hebrew pilgrims made their way up to Jerusalem, up to Mount Zion, they trusted that when they arrived, God would meet with them because he made a covenant promise with them. And and, and that's what we find here. What is so fascinating, though, about this psalm, among other things, there are a lot of things fascinating about it, is the fact that God answers the psalmist's plea Uh, But he enlarges it, as it were. In each case, what God does is do them one better. And so, think about it. In verse 8, what do the people pray? They ask God to come to his resting place as the ark was brought to Jerusalem. In verse 14, God says that he will establish it as his resting place forever and ever. Just bring the ark back and and be there. Now, I'll be there forever then. That's your request. In verse 9, the psalmist asked for righteousness for the priests. In verse 16, God promises to clothe the priests with righteousness, with salvation. And again in verse 9, the psalmist asked that the saints might sing for joy. Well, in verse 16, God promises that the saints, and this is according to uh, the, the NIV, will ever sing for joy. There's this heightened fulfillment. This heightened fulfillment, do this, I'll do it forever. Give them joy, I'll give them joy forever. And this heightened fulfillment of the prayer teaches us several things. Let me just share two of them, practical things. First, remember this. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's what Paul teaches us. That's what we see in the psalm. They ask for one thing, God does more. So in those moments, when we, we kind of face hardship, right? We're, we're struggling with something. When things don't look good, they look bleak. We need to remember, what? That the Lord is a covenant-keeping God. He will not break His vow. And so there's never reason for us to lose hope. Oh, things may look hopeless, but there's never reason to lose hope. And so we must pray, what? We must pray back the promises of God, we must remind him of his covenant that he made with us. We must plead the promises. And he will answer, how? Far more abundantly. And so that's one lesson. Another lesson I want to look at. Now this one's going to where the sermons a little different. It's going to require a little Bible study. But it's important that we make the connections here. Another lesson is that this heightened fulfillment points beyond the situation of the psalm And looks to the future. Ultimately, it points to Christ. Even the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis recognize that the second half of this psalm, at least, speaks about the Messiah. Christ is the fulfillment of the psalm. God did remember his covenant promises for the sake of David and did not reject the anointed one, as verse 10 says. The oath God swore, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, as verse 11 says, is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the son of David. We're told that, right? In the very beginning of the Gospels, in Matthew 1.1, son of David. In the genealogy, he's also the horn to sprout for David. We read that in Psalm 132.17. Remember the birth of John the Baptist? Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, uh, proclaimed this. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. And here's what he says. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now what's the horn? The horn's a sign of strength. And he's saying that is Jesus. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 132, 17. Jesus is mighty to save. Well, as I mentioned, the psalmist says David wasn't only promised a son was he not just a son but a king someone who will sit on his throne and see David Jesus is the Davidic king who sits on the throne of David forever remember it is crucifixion Pilate's questioning him and Jesus responds to Pilate who asked if you're a king and Jesus says you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. John 18, to 37. The purpose of Jesus coming to the world, he says, is to be king. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Revelation 19, 16. This is one reason why, by the way. Understand, one reason why the second person of the triune God had to take on human flesh. This is why he had to be both God and man. He had to be man in order to be the son of David and to identify with sinners. And he had to be God in order to reign forever. And so only Jesus could be the fulfillment of this promised Davidic king. And there's more. The psalmist here in in verses 6 to 8 sings about that earthly ark I told you about. They brought the earthly ark back, the resting place and dwelling place of God. Well, that earthly ark was a copy of the heavenly one, the heavenly reality. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now the point in what I'm saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. See, Christ fulfills this earthly image of an ark, What did the ark, what did the tabernacle, what did the temple represent? It represented the dwelling place of God, of God dwelling with his people. And Jesus fulfills that. At his birth, it is announced what? That he's Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us, God dwelling with us. John tells us the word became flesh and did what? Tabernacled. He dwelt with us. And he carries out his ministry on earth, not, not as an earth, on an earthly tabernacle, but a heavenly one, we're told. He defeated his enemies, as we read in Psalm 132, 18. And having defeated them, how on the cross, he now sits on the throne of God, reigning until all his enemies are under his feet. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 15. You see the back and forth. See, Christ reigns from Zion. He has chosen Zion as his desired dwelling place. That's what Psalm 132, 13 says. And Hebrews tells us that we, his people, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's Hebrews chapter 12. Now, Here's what I want you to think. I know it's a lot of back and forth, but you'll see. In the Old Testament, where was that blood that we just read in Hebrews 12 sprinkled? It was sprinkled on the mercy seat that covered what? The Ark of the Covenant. And that was in the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the high priest would enter, and he would sprinkle blood which he offered for himself and for the people to cover their sins, but... And this is what Hebrews chapter 9 tells us. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, and he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You know what the thing is about the Old Testament priest? He had to keep going back in every year. Every year. And he had to to spill that blood not only for the people but for himself. But Christ, he on the other hand, secures our salvation by his blood once. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now that's a lot to swallow. And if you didn't follow it, I'm not surprised. Uh, there's a lot of kind of back and forth there Old Testament, New Testament. We talk about these priests, the high priest, the priest, blood, and arks, and mercy seats, and tabernacles, and covenants. But I want you to get the gist of it. And here's the main point Christ, Christ is the fulfillment of it all. Christ is the fulfillment of it all. In Christ, the horn of God's salvation is raised. In Christ, the Davidic king reigns forever. In Christ, God rests with his people. Christ is the tabernacle. Christ is the ark. Christ is our mercy seat. He clothes us in his righteousness. He's the mediator of a better covenant. He reigns from the heavenly Mount Zion. And it's from there that he pours out his blessings of salvation upon his covenant people just as verse 15 of Psalm 132 tells us. Christ, Christ is the fulfillment. And so do you understand, the psalmist passionate plea for the presence of God that we started with turns out to be a passionate plea for the presence of Jesus, for for his presence in our life, for his presence in our church, for his presence throughout the nation. See, That is how God answers the psalmist's prayer. He does him one better. Dwell with me. And he gives him Jesus. And because of this, the saints of God, says verse 16, can shout for joy. As we await his final triumph at his second coming, when our salvation will actually be made complete, when the dwelling place of God will, will be forever with his people, we can shout for joy in the meantime. Now, we get a, a, a picture of this, of what's happening here, and what we're reading about and is being, in a sense, uh, prophesied about in Psalm 132. We get a picture of it. In the future, in Revelation 21. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 21. Here's what we read. I'll read uh, a few of the first verses, and, uh, and then I'll jump to verse 22. But it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed. Now look at verse 22. And I saw a new temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the lamb and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb what did psalm 132:18 say on him his crown will shine see Christ's glory will be the light of heaven Christ's glory will be the light of heaven that is the future fulfillment of psalm 132 and who will experience this this, this future we just read about, that was prophesied and promised, and then we see it in a picture form in revelation. We'll look at the end of Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse 27, that is. It says this: "Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's the key. question is, is your name written in the Lamb's book? Of life, Have you been covered in the blood of the Lamb? If not, your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Only those who have been washed, as it were, in His blood. That is, only those who look to His death alone for their salvation, that He died in their place, that He's redeemed them, that He's forgiven them, that He's given them his righteousness, and he has taken upon himself their sins so that they can be forgiven forever. Only they will dwell with God forever. Only those people will have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And so ask yourself, is that you? Do you believe that? And if not, well then repent. Repent of these passions that have kept you from a passionate desire to be with God in Christ. Turn from that. Turn from your sin and plead with God that he'll grant you repentance. That he'll forgive you of your sin. And see, if that happens, if you do that, then Jesus promises to enter your life. He will dwell with you and he will be with you and he'll send his spirit to be with you forever. You will be the temple in which he takes up residence. He will clothe you. How? In his righteousness and you will be able to shout For joy, as the psalmist sings in verse 9. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And With that in mind, I'll, I'll close with this. Let me address then the believer. Well, that was for the unbeliever. If you don't know Christ, turn to him now. But believer, understand, when you gather on Sunday for worship... You're you're, you're gathering to celebrate and to remember and to thank and to praise God for all the blessings of his covenant promises, all the blessings of his salvation that he's bestowed upon you in Christ, past, present, and future. In the past, what did he do? He justified you. In the present, he is sanctifying you. In the future, he will return for you and glorify you. And, and the point is this, that that reality, that reality, and that's what I've been focusing on as we've done this series on the church. That reality, those promises, the covenant promises, should shape your passions. Listen to the Apostle Paul. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, Titus two, eleven to fourteen. See, he appeared, he appeared to bring salvation in his first advent. And now what we do is wait for him to appear in his second advent when he returns for his people. And in in the meantime, we need to be stirred up to renounce these worldly passions and be passionate about being in the presence of God. You should be passionate about the church of Christ which is where God has chosen to meet with his people as Psalm 132:12 promises. You should be passionate about worshiping Christ for his covenantal faithfulness and for his bountiful blessings as verse 11 and 15 promise of Psalm 132. You should be passionate about the return of Christ as verse 18 promises, knowing that when he returns, when he comes back, your salvation will be complete. Your faith will be turned to sight. And you'll spend eternity in the presence of the triune God. That's the passion we need today. We should be crying out. We should be pleading with the Father the same way Jean Ribot pleaded with him. Give me Jesus. I'm facing death. I'm facing this. Whatever I'm facing, give me Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and make your presence known in my life. Come and make your presence known in this community. Come and make your presence known in this nation. Be passionate about Jesus. And the truth is, then you'll start seeing your politics work out. Be passionate about Jesus and and, and that his spirit would come upon this nation as Jean Ribot prayed. and, And pray that God will make his presence known even now here in this church. Even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. That should be our plea. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we think of the story that we heard of the passion of a martyr. We think of the psalmist and those who sung that song. And we think of our salvation in Jesus Christ and how passionate we should be. And We ask you to forgive us. We know we fall short, even at our best times. And yet we pray, Lord, that you would uh, put a fire within us. You would send your spirit that we would have a passion for being in your presence. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.